This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Summer 2018, Episode 13. Today we are discussing Rayview Starlight, particularly the 8th and 9th episodes. I am back from vacation and trying to make up for lost time. Next week, we should return to the normal release schedule. I did come back a little under the weather, but hopefully my voice will hold up for this video and the one tomorrow. So then, this series has gotten quite good down the stretch, hasn't it? The pageantry of the scenes and the tangible presence of the soundtrack really suit a work that revolves around theatrical performances. Something else appropriate to the subject matter is the use of many-layered but obvious symbols. Theater is limited as a medium in some respects, partially because the audience stays in one place and may be quite distant from the stage. Therefore, some elements of the performance need to be more dramatic and obvious than in other mediums because they may otherwise be overlooked. Just like dramatic makeup and costuming, symbols need a certain flamboyance. This is okay, though, as the exaggeration of every element makes all of them mesh together, where something more subtle would actually be out of place by comparison. These last two episodes have been all about overcoming Banana's mission to keep them repeating the timeline. This entails more than just beating her in the auditions. It must also include reducing her will to continue the cycle, both by attacking the wisdom of the repetition and by supplying an attractive alternative. This went much like we supposed, following the pattern of the other girls before her. The victory condition is giving them a sense of peace about changing the desire that brought them to the Rayview in the first place. Alongside the journey of these two episodes, then, is a large and obvious symbol, the Starlight play itself. We got two essential stories during this struggle against Banana, Hikari's history, and the full plot of Starlight. I don't think this is a coincidence. The Starlight story has a lot of mirrors to the actual events surrounding its performers. So much so that we are being led to expect the story of Rayview Starlight to end with tragedy and separation just as the play does. That is, we expect the story to repeat just as Banana's desire was causing the year to repeat. However, the path that led Hikari to Seisho has put in motion events that will overturn Banana's infinite cycle. The story won't repeat. Does this mean that the eventual story of Rayview Starlight can now also diverge from the play? That their real lives won't just be a retelling of Starlight itself? Our video today is going to explore the evidence that the girls are not constrained by the boundaries of the Starlight play, and by extension, the giraffe's auditions. Instead, it seems that they may be writing their own story. Mm. 
So first off, let's run through what we know about the basic Starlight story. It begins with an annual tradition called the Star Festival in a small village, and this is the setting for the two leads, Claire and Flora, to meet one another. They feel an instant rapport and promise to meet again. The pair was bound by a far-off promise. Yet when the festival returns, Claire does not remember. She had an accident while they were apart and lost her memories. She retains an impression that there was something important between them, yet still the memory of it is lost. Flora then proposes that they attempt the Tower to the Stars, believing that if she can take hold of the star at its top, then Claire's memories may return. These lines accompany this desire. If you catch a small star, you've obtained a small bit of happiness. If you catch a large star, you've obtained a large fortune. If you catch both of them, you've caught an eternal wish. Once they arrive together, though, there are six goddesses standing in their way and are described as sleeping and near death. They have been confined to the tower and are the goddesses of different dark emotions, fury, evasion, arrogance, enchantment, jealousy, and despair. These goddesses themselves do not remember why they were thus imprisoned. Despite the opposition, Claire and Flora make it to the top and reach for the star together. The goddesses below tell them to take it, the star that they have wished for. Though Claire does indeed get her memories back, the red rays of the star blind Flora, and she falls from the tower. Thus, even though the wish was granted, the two are separated for eternity, and their dream will never come to be. So, as I said, theatrical symbols tend to be multi-layered. In the case of the Starlight play, there are several parallels between the play's narrative and the offstage narrative. There is the parallel to the underground auditions and the quest for top star, as in both the play and the review, the lead is left alone at the end, with all others fallen or confined below. We know now that reaching for the top star means having a wish granted, just as in the play, but that it also means that the others lose something as a result, or at least the second closest to the top loses something. So in a general sense, Starlight the Play and the underground review are mirrors. There is also a more specific mirror between Maya and Claudine's part of both the auditions and Starlight. Claudine wants to be the lead just as much as Maya does, and we get several reminders that she is unhappy about being the runner-up. One may even say she is blinded with a certain bitterness about the outcome of the Starlight casting. While we don't know what their relationship was before, there is a certain sense that a distance exists between Maya and Claudine, at least partially because of the results of the first year's role competition. When Maya and Karen fight in the third episode, Maya questions why Karen is in the auditions at all. After she talks about being stars together with Hikari, Maya zeroes in on the idea of doing such a thing together. She then quotes the starlight lines about a small star and a large star, before referring to sacrificing that girl, to discarding her. And in context, that girl must mean Claudine. To Maya, there can only be one star, and pursuing it means a willingness to give something up, even another person. This is just the pattern of her and Claudine's starlight roles, where the wish is gained, but Claudine as Flora is cast aside and sacrificed. In fact, her cloak even falls to the ground during that scene, echoing the way the coats are cut off during the auditions to indicate defeat. I think there is also something of a parallel between Starlight and Banana's quest to preserve the time loop. 
The goddesses have been trapped in the tower for 500 years, but don't remember how or why. And this might be pretty similar to how all the other girls are trapped in Banana's cycle without knowing or remembering. When Claire gets the wish from the star, it allows her to remember the events from a year before, even if it separates her from Flora. This seems similar to how Banana is separated from everyone else by virtue of remembering everything, as well as the way she resets things to one year before. Indeed, the melancholy we see her display during her victories is not unlike Claire's malaise at the end of the play upon realizing the intending separation. They get what they want, but it is bittersweet. Finally, the parallel between Karin and Hikari's story and that of Starlight is pretty conspicuous, and actually exists in more than one way. The way Claire and Flora separate for a year, but to make a promise that binds them, recalls the promise between Karin and Hikari to become stars together, despite having to separate in the interim. Hikari's loss in the London auditions steals her shine, and nearly steals her memory of Karin and their vow. Just like Claire, Hikari could vaguely recall that she had lost something. Also like Claire, she will pursue the star and its wish-granting powers in an attempt to restore what was lost. In that way, she and Flora slash Karin can be together. Karin herself writes to Hikari and says that she is hoping for the role of Flora in the next year's production, further cementing which of the story leads each girl is a mirror to. This might be what the giraffe even meant when he talked about Karin being content not playing the lead. Originally though, Hikari does not want to seek the star together with Karin. She knows that losing means losing one's shine. The whole reason she is here for round two is that she has to get it back if she and Karin are to be stars together. That is, both of them need to have their shine. If Karin joins the auditions, one of them must lose, and that just puts them right back where they started. Thus, at first, Hikari actually tries to supplant Karin, taking the eighth spot instead of her. She may therefore have taken the role of Flora at first, something I think is implied by the very first underground audition. When Hikari is fighting Juna, there comes a moment when she is pinned to one of the star props by an arrow. She seems helpless, and Juna prepares to finish the job. During this scene, Hikari is suddenly illuminated by red spotlights from several directions, identical to the way Flora is blinded at the end of Starlight. Hikari seems moments away from being blinded and falling from the tower too, so to speak. The reason it doesn't happen though, is that Karin falls instead, casting herself into the arena and therefore into the auditions themselves. She changes their pattern back into seeking for the star together, even though Hikari had tried to prevent that. Both her experience with the London auditions and her knowledge of Starlight suggests that Karin might end up losing everything and being separated from her if she participates. Once this path is set though, both of them start for the top together. Just like Claire and Flora, they must start at the bottom and work their way up through the other goddesses that populate the tower. Now, there's some other obvious parallels between Starlight and our characters. Uh, the jewel colors matching their gem colors, having the same weapons in both play and auditions, the dark emotions of each goddess, and so on. The only other things I want to draw a special attention to is the attitudes towards Starlight between Karin, Hikari, and Banana. Despite causing the timeline to reset so that she does it repeatedly, Banana actually hates Starlight. As she says, it's a tragedy. 
It's about being separated from someone you're close to. Even if she likes the preparation and the rehearsal and the performance and all the camaraderie involved in that process, the separation which lies at the end terrifies her. For her, Starlight draws too close of a parallel to her own time at Seisha. The three years might be magical and excitingly brilliant while they're ongoing, but separating from all these true friends is what awaits her at Journey's End. That fear of the future has poisoned her present, though it seems she's at a loss at what else to do. Compare that instead to Karin and Hikari. They're well aware of what the story is, yet what they latch onto is what drives Claire and Flora. After they complete their reading of the original book in episode 9, each thinks to themselves about the lead that they identify with. Karin thinks of Flora's courage to try to make a miracle happen for her best friend, while Hikari thinks of Claire's ability to recall the promise with her best friend despite the loss of memory. They love Starlight, both the story and its key significance in their own distant past. Although they may want to change their own story so that it does not go the way of Starlight's separation, that desire doesn't make them fear or dread the production or the auditions. Rather, it galvanizes them. When the draft's email for the seventh day comes, they look at each other with resolve. Karen may have jumped into the fray without knowing what was going on, but they are in it to win it now. Winning will mean getting to rewrite the story. And yet, some rewriting of the story has already been taking place. Thanks to the revelation of Banana's time loop shenanigans, there is already a known path that the offstage parts of this narrative follow. The normal progression of events, the character relationships, the outcome of the auditions, all of that has been largely the same for however many times Banana has seen it through. If she had wished for something else at the end of the reviews, then that first timeline would be simply the way things happened, mirroring Starlight as much as they did. That is the original parallel. Now though, the story has begun to shift. Banana summarizes it pretty well herself at the end of the ninth episode. There is a montage of scenes against which Banana is explaining that Hikari showing up and Karin changing meant that everyone changed a lot. It's showing the girls in different social configurations than when we started, illustrating the change in the group that she is talking about. There is also the script for the next Starlight, for the 100th Seishou Festival. Banana tells Juna that that script is unknown to her. Since we had a bit earlier about one of the Group B girls working hard to finish it, I think we can assume that normally they have not completed the next script before Banana resets the timeline. She has never seen it before. As they start doing read-throughs, it becomes clear that a lot of the lines have changed. In fact, the one we specifically see is a line from the Goddess of Despair, which was Banana's role in The Last Starlight. So her part in Starlight quite literally has been rewritten in front of her. What's more, Karin is the one reading it and pointing it out, while also praising the change. Now, Banana correctly reasons out that Karin is the one who has caused her timeline to alter so much. That moment she jumped in for Hikari's sake was the stone thrown into the pond, rippling out to affect everything else. Thus, she confronts Karin about her involvement during their fight, a fight which begins with an image of the toppled Tower to the Stars that recalls the one Banana was looking at sadly before she and Juna discussed the new script, as well as the one that appeared when Banana was first introduced to the auditions. It too is slated to be rebuilt for the 100th performance, 
One more example for Banana that her precious 99th festival is slipping away, waiting to be replaced. And so she is accusatory when she asks Karin why she is involved in the auditions. She points out that Starlight is a tale woven from eight people. There is no ninth person. What role is Karin even playing then if she is outside the normal eight? She tells her she's changed. She's not the same person she was up until now, and she wants to know why. It seems pretty clear then that the normal offstage mirror to Starlight is completely off the rails, and that Karin is the main culprit. This is not a surprise to us in the audience, as we've been watching Karin's loosely defined goal and understanding slowly solidify into something like purpose. Karin was an outsider, after all. Everyone else was invited to the audition. Karin entered the fray as an act of defiance. Small wonder she alone is capable of defying the usual pattern of the story. She may be outside its power entirely. And yet, I think it's important to note that Karin is not the only one changing things not the only one contributing new scenes to their ongoing performance. In fact, this is the main reason I wanted to make this video, to point out how many others are also adding changes and lines to our script. This goes way beyond just Karin and Hikari. Pretty much everyone besides Banana is united in the goal of seeing the next Starlight being better than the previous one. During the read-through, after Karin points out the line changes, the girls have a discussion about the importance of taking on new challenges, and decry the boredom of repeating the same story. Juna begins this discussion, but Maya is the one who jumps in to really elucidate the point. It then continues into a montage of preparations, and narration passes between different girls who all echo the same sentiment. So they are on the same page, but it's more than just ideological agreement. Futaba and Karuko made their peace with each other and their place in the class a few episodes ago. Now they are actively adding their input, as Futaba consults about changing the weapon props, and Karuko does the same for altering the costumes. We further see Claudine giving input and modeling clothing, and Maya consulting and discussing the scripts with the Class B girls. Considering how Banana is transfixed by the concept art for the next performance, I think we can infer that this is a departure from the familiar as well. After Banana loses to Karin and she is alone and dejected, she is joined by Juna, who ends up rattling off appropriate quotes to try to cheer her up. As Banana prods her for more quotes, and then still more, it's clear these sayings are all new things to her. But rather than being scared of their newness, as she has been about a new starlight, she is actually hungry for additional new sayings. When Juna runs out, she gives her one that comes from herself. That is, she literally writes a line for herself in their offstage performance. Because of this contribution from Juna, Banana actually confesses that even though she kept restarting the year, she would play with lines and directions for each repeat performance, altering it slightly each time to make things more fun or draw everyone together. That is, even Banana, practically the gatekeeper for making reality stay on script, was still compelled to change things a little, to improve it an inch at a time. It's really only the dramatic and rapid onslaught of changes that Karin unleashed that has put her so out of sorts. She even admits that despite her fear, those new days were exciting. Everyone was so new and charming. Thus, even though we thought that convincing Banana an uncertain future could be better than an infinitely familiar present, she herself was nudging reality down a slightly different path each time through. This may even be part of why Hikari and Karin were able to best her. 
she had slowly relaxed her desire for repetition in every iteration, until her will no longer makes her the unstoppable wrecking ball that she was at the beginning. Banana's life has slowly been written out of its close mirror to Starlight, and her hand was the one that held the pen. Juna even tells her she needs to keep her copy of the script, to take it with her to the next stage. If even Banana is on board with these divergences, doesn't it seem increasingly likely that the girls may end up being able to write their own story? Crazily enough, even the giraffe might be on board. When Hikari confronts him about her lost shine and he gives her a second chance, he waxes poetic for a bit about the purpose of the Ray view. He says that it is a fateful stage, one upon which no one can predict what will happen, and adds that this is what he wants to see. We mentioned before that he was aware that Banana was causing the repetition, and it seemed he might have wanted it to end. Now that we know he specifically guided Hikari to join these auditions, we might can infer that the giraffe wants to see the story rewritten as well, that ultimately he wants to be entertained and surprised at what the girls can manage. Finally, and I think this is really key, there is Karin's reaction to the storybook that Starlight is taken from. She holds the book up and praises it, calls it a treasure. But Hikari insists it isn't so. It's just an old book one can find anywhere. It doesn't have value, but what does have value is the kind of stage they'll perform on and the kinds of stars they'll become. In other words, the original story is not some inviolable truth, some permanent fixture. It may motivate or captivate them, but the inspiration itself is less important than what it inspires them to do. The fixed story of Starlight is not sacred or set in stone. Karin agrees with Hikari. The new version of Starlight they are all working toward is a symbolic mirror of this new timeline they have now that they've broken free of Banana's cycle. And thus does Karin sum up the driving purpose of the series when she says, this new Starlight, we have to make it the best. So what is next for this story? It looks like Maya has returned to being the monster at the end of the book, and that she once again casts a shadow over position zero. I definitely haven't forgotten how overwhelming her stage presence was during the earlier showdown with Karin. As we already mentioned, Banana's original will had been eroding for some time, so I don't think we ever saw her original level of performance that was capable of flattening Maya. Claudine is still alive as well, as the after credits scene in episode 9 shows the board emptied of all but these two and Hikari and Karin. The draft suggests that there is but one more day of auditions, bringing the total to an appropriately thematic 8. There's only two matchups that we haven't seen yet, which is Hikari and Maya and Hikari and Karin. While a Hikari-Karin audition has been ominously foreshadowed for a long time, I find it hard to believe that a fair audition process wouldn't give Hikari a chance to knock Maya out of the top spot. I actually suspect that since we already have the anomaly of Karin as a ninth participant, we might get the anomaly of a ninth audition day as well, though like her, it might be something different than these formal themed reviews we've been seeing. Considering where we are in the series, one more showdown and the story is over seems unlikely. Regardless of the exact narrative from here, the actual struggle will be confronting the wills that drive Maya and Claudine. All of the girls who are off the board now went through a transformation of their desires that gave them something they wanted and could work toward that does not require becoming top star. 
Maya and Claudine, though, don't seem to have a desire for which the wish-granting tiara is a means. Rather, being top star is their goal because it represents being the best. Perhaps we'll get a closer examination of their characters soon, and this will change, but the pattern of the auditions has not been just about besting your opponent. Indeed, if we're right that Karin wants everyone to stand on stage together, which implies that everyone gets something they want, then the only possible path to victory for her is for each of the girls to make peace with something besides the tiara. Right now, I don't have a good idea of what that could be for Maya or Claudine. The thing I think worth pointing out, then, is how the pair of Maya-Claudine stacks up against the pair of Kara and Hikari, and how this compares to these starlight parallels. Maya and Claudine have already been the fated couple, and though they both aimed for the top role of Claire, only Maya succeeded. We drew this comparison already, and how it results both in Claudine as Flora being blinded and cast down, and Claudine as a person falling short and harboring negative emotions. Though they are rivals and competitors, and there certainly exists some respect between them, they are absolutely not a team. Like Claire and Flora, they end Starlight separated and distinct. So long as both shoot for the role of Claire, and the loser is doomed to be Flora, their personal separation will mirror that of Starlight's. Perhaps within this lies their undoing, as their motivation does not match those of Claire and Flora, who aspired to climb the tower to the stars because of a shared promise. They do not match our symbolic play's characters in this manner, even though there is a mirror in the outcome. For contrast, Hikari and Karin reflect Claire and Flora in a much more direct way. One of the things we learned from these past two episodes is the origins of their hair clips. These were not souvenirs that each of them chose to commemorate seeing Starlight, or because they were parting. These clips were gifts. Karin chose the double star clip to give to Hikari, and Hikari chose the crown and tiara clip to give to Karin. Each was given to the other and not chosen for themselves and they underscore the importance of these gifts every day by being sure that they put the clips back on. In this way, each reconfirms their promise each morning, and they have done so for years and years. What I think is important is that the gifts reflect their promise as well, that it was a thing given from each to the other, not acquired independently for themselves. There is even a visual mirror to this in the two scenes with the playground slide, in which each girl extends a hand to the other while elucidating their shared purpose. They even happen from opposite sides and during opposite times of the day, yet both still result in them standing together before the grand stage of Tokyo Tower. The tower itself turns out to be more of a pattern than we first guessed. The London auditions feature Tower Bridge, while the Japanese ones feature Tokyo Tower, and the structure pursued in Starlight is the Tower to the Stars. All of these instances of a tower are no accident, and so it feels especially significant that Karin and Hikari already had a strong association with the real Tokyo Tower as part of their promise. The gifted hair clips, which stand in for their dedication to one another, actually seem to have come from a shop within the Tokyo Tower complex, furthering the parallel. Anyway, the hair clips as gifts, reflecting their promise as a gift, makes them distinct among the girls vying for the top. Everyone else's purpose comes from within, even if that purpose is for the sake of another. When Karin and Hikari fight Banana, each of them calls upon their promise for strength during the fight, 
and in each case, they are able to turn the tide immediately afterward. This promise is the power necessary to beat Banana, the power to change the story and allow a new starlight to be told. Their desire has gone through transformations, just like most of the others, yet theirs continues to push them toward the top and continues to be shared. This distinction solidifies them as the true mirror to Claire and Flora, and so the offstage version of Starlight should naturally include them in its truest form. Now, I don't want to speculate too much about exactly what will occur. I think the way Shine is used as fuel and taken from the girls will come into play in an important way, and I think there will be a ninth audition of sorts, even if it's not quite like the seven that we've seen thus far. Um, and I'm not sure what other details make sense just yet. But I will say that if our observation about the girls collectively rewriting the story is correct, then the only way this story doesn't end up as tragic as Starlight is if they can convince Claudine and Maya to join in the rewriting as well. We saw already that they strive for an improved 100th production just like everyone else. We just wait to see what kind of story they would want for themselves. I think the best possible version of Starlight, though, is one in which everyone is able to get what they want. Or, as Karin puts it, that they are all able to stand on stage together. That the powerful play goes on, and each may contribute a verse. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash c slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.